Never fall in love with the woman who sells herself. It always ends bad! And if you are planning to start this one by singing Lady Marmalade, you can actually chicky chicky yaya yourself fuck out of here. <laughs> Is that your voice beginning this episode? <laughs> okay. I was thinking something on the lines of the show will be a magnificent, opulent, tremendous, stupendous, gargantuan, bedazzlement, a sensual ravishment. And so exciting, the audience will stomp and cheer. So delighting, it will run for 50 years and it's not this podcast. It's not, most definitely, it's not this podcast. <laughs> this is the one that the audience will quickly just shut down. Like, nope! And close. Terve. Or just. Bonjour, as they say in the, in the big world. Exactly. Well, if you didn't know already, I'm Karri. And you're our listener. I hope still. And... My co-host is somewhere there. He's the public enemy number one, Henrik. Henrik and I, we have been and are studying media at some point in our lives, at least me. I have been working in the media circles for a bit. And movies are our kind of a, I don't know, bread and butter, but it's our passion. <laughs> more, more or less, I, I would say at this point, movies are all bordering on obsession. <sighs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like we 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 spent way too much of free time talking about movies these days. So, so, so the passion level maybe has already gone overboard, and at this point, this whole thing starts to be a problem. Not to be bragging or anything, but talking about movies, editing about movies, researching for movies, and this pretty much takes all of our free time. So, good going. But yeah, that's the gist of it. Time for our first musical in this podcast. It's about time. It's episode 87. So welcome to that. Yeah. Well, also welcome to possibly our shortest episode for a while. Because I, uh, I have an inkling feeling that this might be actually a pretty short one. Don Camillo was one hour, 28 minutes. Well, we can always try to be even shorter. Maybe maybe, maybe our, our dingling audience actually appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Don't. Can't, can't say, can't say. Buy milk, buy anticot steaks, hog fought cheese, prepare for the episode. Buy leather underwear, call the courtesan. Oh, oh, wrong lines. I'm so sorry. It's it's a happy thing that we don't have a script. So Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like people most definitely are, you know, storming in to congratulate us for our <sighs> decision not to script this episode beforehand. We're gonna have a little bit of a special part in this episode. Uh, in the end, we're gonna try something different. We're gonna. No, we are not. We're not. No, no. no. <laughs> wh- wh- whatever, whatever you are, you are planning to propose. I'm already objecting. <laughs> Eighty-seven episodes in, and Henrik is starting to get the idea how to work around here. But yeah, we're we are going to try just a tiny weeny bit, Henrik, to advertise other podcasts because we have already 
already enough listeners in this podcast. So let's spread the joy of podcasts in the film podcast universe. Because, well, truth of the matter is, is that there's a hell of a lot of film podcasts. And there are some pretty good ones. So I thought we would, like, help the audience out. So what is this show about? It's about uh, reviewing one film per one week in this show. And actually, we get so hell of a analytical in this show that we're going to go pretty much scene by scene and uh, point out every single thing that popped into our mind. And then we finish the episode with this, what we call quickies, where we will go through a couple of categories from the film and say what was our best or worst or favorite this or that. That's about it. Uh, this uh, show is sponsored by Loot Crate, I believe. <laughs> yeah, L- Loot Crate. You know, whenever you want to buy useless shit from a company that went bankrupt. <laughs> and before we lawyers will be approaching us, no, we are not sponsored by Loot Crate and anything else for that matter. So enjoy. No advertisement breaks here for the five, five first five minutes, except just some weird babbling. Yup. Yep, on on this film podcast, which is a web page, was done by using Skillshare. <laughs> nope. <laughs> but yeah. Mulan Rouge. Why are we watching this film? Well, because Henrik did watch this film as a teenager. That's pretty much it. <laughs> we Thanks for really that. Have, we, we are really taking a step back on our, our reasoning why to, how to pick <laughs> the film. <laughs> Today's film is a, is a movie that somebody saw some time ago in some place. <laughs> yeah. Once upon a time in Finland. <laughs> once upon a time. Yeah, Henrik wrote uh, once again a review on this website called Vitonen, which does not exist anymore. And uh, we were doing it together. There were a couple of others. Yeah, that's kind of how it's here. It's kind of It kind of popped into my mind as the first idea because we needed to do one musical anyway. Yeah, and, and Molan Rouge... Kind of. Like, this is the trick with Moulin Rouge. It's not a bad musical, but it's kind of a bad musical to be covered in, in the Flick Lab. <laughs> Can't you say so? <laughs> anything more encouraging? <laughs> no, kind of not. Because, because Moulin Rouge... The, the, the fact is, the reason why I'm, I'm kind of a, having the, the feeling that this one will be kind of a shorter episode... From us is that there, in the end, there is not that much to say about Moulin Rouge. So, for example, the scene-by-scene analysis might be something that we get through pretty quickly. Yeah, but kind of technically, it's sort of what we consider an international cinema because it was shot mostly in Australia, and I really suck at Australian accent. And it was directed by an Australian, but not done in France in any way. But it must be the biggest piece of advertisement that Hollywood or, well, Hollywood ever gave for Moulin Rouge. Most likely, yeah, because Moulin Rouge was a goddamn gargantual hit when it came out. Yeah, and uh, it was a long process. The shooting began in November 1st, 1999. It's some kind of a some obsession for the Aussie director Bas Luhrmann, part of his uh, so, so-called Curtain Trilogy. And it consists of Strictly Ballroom and Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Romeo plus Juliet. Ro- I, exactly, I was about to you say. You don't, don't have to be edgy in the, in the late 90s. Yeah, you're right. Romeo plus Juliet. Musical setting of Montmartre, 
right here. Nominated for eight Oscars, won two of those. Best Art Direction and Best Costume Design. Six Golden Globe nominations, won three, including Best Picture. Twelve nominations at BAFTA, won three. Yeah. Five months of yes, go ahead. And, and more important than what Moulin Rouge actually ended up winning on the on the award categories is all the categories that it was nominated for because it's it's like a year or two after Moulin Rouge when the film musical Chicago came out and ended up winning for example if I remember correctly best picture and other big category awards also from the Academy Awards and I would and do argue that it was the success of Moulin Rouge that kind of paved way for for Chicago for for the big award season take takeaway that 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 film had like had Moulin Rouge not happened my guess is Chicago wouldn't have gone gained all the awards that it ended up winning do you remember that TV advertisement Chicago I have no idea what even happened there I just remember Chicago and everybody else does too I luckily missed all the TV advertisement around Chicago which is a in in my opinion blessing because usually the Finnish TV advertising when it comes to movies or yeah. or, or the Finnish mo- versions of of global movie th- movie trailers tend to be pretty shit. Well, the funny thing is, it it's uh, around from that time period, but it had nothing to do with the film Chicago. But some boy was listening on his headphones, I think, for something, and the song ended with Chicago. <laughs> it's legendary advertisement. Maybe look it up. Okay, let's go. Who cares? Five months of preparation was done in script rehearsals. There was singing lessons and vocal coaching included and shot on five huge sound stages in Sydney, Australia. Nothing, as far as understanding goes, was shot externally because they wanted to create a like a different kind of a vibe of a world that really doesn't exist. And in many cases, I would say that they most definitely ex- succeeded in creating something quite special. Special would kind of be the best ex- exemplifying world for Moulin Rouge. Yeah, 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 yeah. There is a lot of things to discuss, and then again, not so much. Not, not, not so much in in the end. There was a rough cut shown to executives of the studio. Uh, they liked the film, and when the first screening of Moulin Rouge was held in LA, it was uh, early two thousand one. They made damn sure that uh, nobody would know that it's a musical when they entered the theater, and that seemed to backfire a bit as some people walked out. But some kept going and, uh, in the end, uh, embraced the film, at least says one documentary on the subject. And why wouldn't they? The box office started low and reviews were even kind of split in the middle. But then something happened, grossed 169 million in 10 months. Well, Henrik, what is the Moulin Rouge? Moulin Rouge, as you did establish, it's the second film in Barcelona's Curtain Trilogy, it's his third film altogether. I, I would say maybe the, the first film from Bass, which I actually really did care about. I've never seen Strictly Ballroom myself, and Romeo plus Juliet never did it for me. That, that I, I always felt that that film was kind of a pretentious and 
trying too hard to be edgy. And at least for me, Moulin Rouge is kind of the film after which I became interested in, in Lumar's work. It's also, I would maintain, the best case example of, of Lumar as an auteur or what interests Lumar as a director. His, his basic conceit, he, what, what he is interested about as a filmmaker is most obvious in, in Moulin Rouge, both in the good and in the bad. I appreciated the chaotic nature of some of the scenes. Things just keep escalating and escalating, and there's a speedy, and well, it's a musical, so there's going to be kind of a music video-ish cutting. There's a couple of scenes that I really liked, but we will get to <clears throat> Yeah, so- somehow I get the feeling that you don't really care about the Moulin Rouge all that much. <laughs> let's find out. <laughs> but before that, <laughs> let's talk about the other Moulin Rouge. The Moulin Rouge that this Moulin Rouge is based on. Well, Moulin Rouge is French and it means Red Mill. And Moulin Rouge or the Red Mill is a very famous cabaret in Paris, France. And it is also the birthing ground of the modern flavor of the can-can dance. It was uh, originally meant for seductive purposes, used by courtesans. And courtesan is a fancier word for a prostitute, especially for this kind of a bourgeois prostitute. And Moulin Rouge opened in 1889, destroyed by fire in 1915, rebuilt in 1921. The portal part of the whole thing closed in 1946, along with other portals in France or Paris at that time. But of course, the dance and show business carried on as usual. Kind of a troubled production, in a way, at least for a couple of people. Bas Lurman's father died during the production. Nicole Kidman suffered several injuries. And there were a couple of other mishaps. Yeah, most notable, I, I guess, from the mishap territory would be Nicole Kidman's injuries during during the filming. She ended up breaking two of her ribs when do, doing doing all those hanging stunts or performances that he she, that she does early in the film and later on she was in such of a bad shape that she actually was tied to a wheelchair and could only be shot from waist up. That's true. One documentary at least, how it's built, it could mean of course anything. In the way it is edited, it suggests that some of those scenes could have included one of the close-ups when in the introductory period of Nicole Kidman's character she is behind these sheets when she's changing her clothes. There were some considerations for the leading role, leading male role. There was Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal. As far as I know, they never went to the audition quite yet, or were not even called into audition. But the people that were in auditions were Leo DiCaprio and Courtney Love. Courtney Love, who secured at least one songwriter regarding Nirvana's music in this film helped to secure the rights for usage of that. Yeah, Love famously demanded that she has to somehow appear in the film before the the right to use smells like teen teen spirit was granted for the for the production. And did she? I actually never found out. When, when doing my backgrounds, I'm guessing, yeah, but it would be in a way that she has been hidden somewhere in the background. All right. 
never actually at least paid any closer eye and spotted Cortnilla from, well, well anywhere in, in the film. But then again, this is one of those cast of fucking five million movies, so, you know, details and persons get kind of lost in the crowd. So it goes. I guess it's uh, time to start the bashing and what have you. So, would it be a zine by zine? By all means. Alright, why not? Let's get it over with. There was a boy, a very strange, enchanted boy. His name was Henrik. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and we are shortly introduced to the lines of the film that repeat over and over. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Alright, so in the beginning scenes we have kind of a this of a montage or weird camera movement throughout this still imagery blended with uh, something drawn, something in front of a green screen live video material. Kind of a very artistic beginning and, and kind of draws you in right away. I'm sorry to say though that the kind of a artistic, let's say, tightness of the film is loosened up throughout the film. Mm, yeah, it, it does falter a bit as, as the movie moves on. The, the style is most prominent in the, I would say, the opening half an hour of the movie. And once the story starts to become more prominent, or, or story and story, story in quotation marks, starts to become more prominent, the, the style starts to slowly, it, it starts, starts to settle more and and stay more on the more on its tracks it doesn't lose it completely but it is no longer so hectic audiovisual extravaganza that as it is in the in the opening minutes during the first sequences of the film exactly and that's understandable of course we're in the beginning of the film you have to draw in the audience but it definitely gets more loose and well let's get to that later but uh so in this opening scene, we're introduced to this uh, part of Paris where where all the kind of uh, artistic people, bohemians, have gathered. And one of them is an Englishman. And he has decided to join this kind of a lifestyle here in Paris with his new friends that he will find in a minute. Yeah, of course, uh, this is uh, Christian, our main male lead character. But I'm just going to call him Ewan McGregor. Yeah. MacGregor being in in this film, uh, I, I some kind of a wannabe poet, a novelist. What what is MacGregor's main driving focus? It's never actually made that love, clear. Love, love, he love, just love. wants to take part in in the artistic movement in somehow. His focus is love. All you need is love. His his focus kinda is is love. Like this is, uh, I, I guess I, I can just, you know, <clears throat> stop cockteasing here and, and get this out of, out of the way. When I said in the, in the very beginning that Moulin Rouge is, most likely this episode is going to be our shortest one and Moulin Rouge is kind of a wrong movie to do a flick lap episode of. Uh, what, what I meant is that Moulin, there really is not that much in Moulin Rouge. Like Moulin Rouge is, is a, its core Moulin Rouge is a film that doesn't commit to anything. It it doesn't commit to its characters. They have like so, some are barely three dimensional. Most of them are 
just kind of there. It doesn't commit to its story. It's a bunch of cliches and mostly it's there simply because, you know, a musical has to have a story or it's not qualified as a musical. It doesn't commit to, the, to its setting. The, the film takes place in, in Paris in 1900s, but other music choices are from all the centuries and mostly American ones. It doesn't commit to love. That the film says love quite a lot, but all, all it has to say about love in the end is, is just, you know, quotations from pop songs, essentially. And it doesn't commit to any theme or idea. idea. Like, the, the, the film uses big words. It, it uses uh, revolution. They are children of the revolution. But what is the revolution in Moulin Rouge? Like, it, it's not any real revolution. The, the film makes it that blatantly clear to you. It's not any kind of a French revolution. It's, it's Bohemian revolution, which never didn't actually take place as a as a real revolution. And it, it doesn't really even commit to a revolution as an idea. They talk about how they are children of the revolution. But once, once again, I, I do ask, what is the revolution? Like, are, are, they, are they going to close the welfare gap? Are they going to free the tools of production? No, the revolution, as, as they make clear, is, is about beauty, freedom, truth, and, and pop song quotation love. So in the end, yeah. the revolution is nothing more than emotional right to self-express yourself through art by a bunch of hipsters. The only thing that the film actually commits to is its style. The attempt to be kind of a, as extravagant as possible to be a musical for the MTV generation. Uh, Throughout to be told, I did like the fact that it's mixed with MTV generation or something modern, let's say. Something, a modern pop culture extravaganza combined with something that kind of could have been 1899 in the mind of Buzz Luhrmann. Of course, that's not how Moulin Rouge looked back in back in the day, but it's some kind of a updated vision of what kind of would resonate and would make the masses appreciate the 1899 Moulin Rouge in today's world. Or we are fucking old already, and this podcast has been running way too long, but this movie especially is like 20 years old, so we're already talking like about a film from the Stone Ages. Not pop anymore. Mm, kinda not and kinda yeah. I mean, I too like the visual style of Moulin Rouge. A hell of a lot. I'm, like, like spoilers, I'm one of the persons <coughs> who actually like the film quite a lot. I mean, okay. in, in, in case you were ho <laughs> hoping that this is going to be the e episode where you can rub my old review on my face and, and hear me taking my words back, that's not gonna happen. God damn it. <laughs> I can search it for you. But by all means, by all means. But if I remember correctly my old review, my main take was that I did most definitely appreciate and love the visual style and and the editing style of the film and the hectic nature of it how kind of a luscious it was in in its visual and 
an audio presentation. This is most definitely, I, I would say, this is an audio-visual masterpiece. It's not masterpiece in basically any other territory, like it's it, in, in story or necessarily even as a movie, not, not necessarily a cinematic masterpiece, but an audio-visual one. And I, I, when I said that the film, the only thing that the film commits to is, is its visual presentation, I didn't mean that as a, as a, as a negative talking point. Actually, I do think that that's a correct choice made by the film because it's also what that choice does. It kind of takes wing out of the most common negative arguments and accusations that you could throw against the film. Like, are you going to criticize its one-dimensional characters? But go ahead, the film didn't commit to them. Their the lackluster story didn't commit. The, no, the, not me. Mo most of the arguments kind of lose their power because the film never actually... The film intentionally didn't pay any eye to those those typical aspects of, of cinema. And instead just went all in into its visual presentation. And when it comes to visual presentation... You don't have to like it necessarily. Like you, you, you can, you can by by all means, you know, crucify the film for its visual presentation. And you can say that the audience, the way how the film is edited, makes you nauseous and you hate it. That's a that's a valid criticism, but it's it's not kind of a breaking fault for the film itself because that's once again that's a, that's a knowingly made decision by the film. Yeah. I have nothing bad to say about those factors that you just stated. So just, but coming to our main attraction here, which is your old review. No, no, I just, uh, I've, I found the last line, which states that, uh, if I may, <clears throat> um, and even if you're not interested in a musical, you should still buy the film, at least for the extras, is the last line of your review. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I kind of still stand by even with my closing argument like there's a great bunch of extras here yeah at least when it came out the, the extras i i found them to be really kind of intriguing maybe they're kind of the first dvds that came out that was really packed with with special features yeah two discs yeah which was kind of a event on its own right back in the day nothing nothing major today anymore because now we have like like the extended cuts of the lord of the rings films like four discs oh yeah. and and going up uh, yeah I, I i still kind of stand by by that closing line of my old review yeah so the film begins with the song nature boy uh by nat king cole covered by david bowie and remixed by massive attack for the soundtrack <clears throat> but in the Blu-ray release, there was a little bit of a revelation that the, originally it was supposed to be Cat Stevens' song Father and Son, sung by the character Christian McGregor. But they didn't get the permission to use that one from Cat Stevens. Cat Stevens outright refused, refused the permission for using this song for the film. And therefore it became the Nature Boy. Uh, the kind of a gist for the song Father and Son was that uh, Christian would be arguing with his father that we see very shortly in this beginning of the film. That he's arguing with, with his father for making him see that he has to go to Paris in order to make his dreams come true. Something like that. So Paris, 1899. Apparently it's a summer of love. 
I don't know. I, I know a lot of Summer of Loves, but apparently 1899 was uh, especially special. So McGregor is writing his uh, play, I suppose, or is it just a story of uh, his experiences? It, it is his story. Like the, the the film begins from the very end of of the story itself. Yeah, but I, what I mean is that is he going to make a play out of it, or is it going to be just his memoirs? Like I said, you actually never goddamn know because what what is Gregor's motivation? Like what he wants to be in in terms of a playwright, poet, a novelist? That's never actually anyway made clear to you yeah and why would he do that in the first place you know the woman he's the love of his life is gone died dead and now the the like the great idea of satine with the last dying breaths of hers was that uh, please give me a life please keep torturing yourself until the end of times by writing this piece and uh, i i suppose that means that in a way, to keep her alive, it would be a play. That's the kind of idea I got, but it could be anything, really. It, it could be anything, really. And if you take a look at the pages that Christian is writing, none of that actually in any way hints that what he's writing is a play. Like the produced text, the little you see of it, which mostly is narration, is something that usually belongs to to novel or or something like that. But luckily, quote, right at that moment, an unconscious Argentinian fell through my roof. He was quickly joined by a dwarf dressed as a nun. We're off to an interesting start. I kind of love it. We are also off to actual historical figures, because... Yep, his name was... uh, Henry Marie Raymond Toulouse Lautrec Montfort, something like that. Yeah, yeah, which, which I will refer to as Toulouse because I am not gambling man enough to try to pronounce <laughs> the rest of the name. But Toulouse from the cast, cast of characters, as far as I've understood, is the only one that actually does have a historical counterpart. There is Sittler, the, the kind of a co-owner uh, of Moulin Rouge, although the first name of Zidler is different here than it is or was in reality. Okay, I co- completely missed the Zidler connection from, from the film, film and only found Toulouse. But Toulouse, this is indeed a French painter and artist. Uh, yeah, um, perhaps most no- known for the, for the marketing poster that he made for Moulin Rouge. The, the real cabaret bordello place. Uh, was one of the best-known painters of the post-impressionist period so around that time. Yep. Um, used to hang a hell of a lot in, in brothels and with prostitutes. And uh, maybe kind of that contributed to, to his most notable work or why his, his work became so important. Because... He may have been one of the early painters of that era that actually did paint about prostitutes, uh, prostitutes and kind of their their life, mm. and docu- documented that that kind of a side of one class in Paris. Well, do you want to know something less spectacular? A play called Spectacular, Spectacular. I mean, somebody made an effort to. Think up that name. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that's also one thing that the film never commits to. The names of its fictional plays. Yeah, like there are other things that have like the, the same adjective against one another in some pop culture. I can think of any, but there are definitely those. So it's kind of imitating this kind of haha, same style. So it just turns out that McGregor is uh, replacing the unconscious Argentinian or Argentine. There seems to be a heated discussion online whether it's supposed to be Argentine or Argentinian when you're talking about Argentinian or Argentines. Then there is a random grab of some underpant garments or trousers. Quote, I like him. Nothing funny. I just like talent. This film has some kind of a oddly placed weird humor sometimes. Nothing really funny except kind of a randomly disturbing ball grab. And with McGregor making that stupid, oh, which he does a couple of times. Have you ever drank absinthe, Henrik? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure if if some <laughs> of those poisons are still considered illegal in Finland. Like, at least some of the absinthe brands. I, I do have some experiences with the stuff. Yeah, well, I'm sure that you did it in the Netherlands, where I think it's legal. Hopefully legal. Let's say Netherlands, best bet. <laughs> so definitely, it seems that uh, the director took some artistic liberties by representing like a 1899 Moulin Rouge show. So at least from what I know about Moulin Rouge, it's kind of like any other place. You have a stage and people are staring at it. But here it's kind of a, everybody is mixed up in this show. Everybody's on, on the stage. Everything is a big stage and everybody is running around everywhere. Anything could, could happen. But hey, uh, I don't think that really was the norm, but it makes it look very fantastic. So here we have the introduction of the rest of the main characters inside Moulin Rouge and uh, entry to the second act is about to happen when our second lead Nicole Kidman as Satine gets some kind of a freak reaction when she's up sky high and uh, faints grabbed by a black guy called Chocolate is it good job why is the guy's name Chocolate I don't know why why does the guy have only one line in the entire film what is that Bla well, uh, Christian gives him the the orders to go and fetch Satine's stuff or something like that. That when they are about to, you know, pray, uh, make their break and make a run for it, escape from Paris and Moulin Rouge and from the Duke at the very end of the film. And if I remember correctly, Chocolat remarks something like "yes" or "understood" or something like that. It's it's one or two words that the dude gets to say, and that's all he has to say in the entire film. Like when, yeah. when, when, I, when I said that the film doesn't commit to its characters, and most of the cast <clears throat> is just kind of there, this is precisely what I mean with it. It also plays with Mimi, who is supposed to be kind of the the bad guy of the story, or who yeah. who, who plays the whole. Judas part of the narrative at the very end. Like even even she she outside of her her traitorous act and the Roxanne dance number, she too just is kind of there, just like she's in this sequence, a yeah, face I, in the crowd. I, so so that's that's what happened. So she has polluted her brain with some Judas role, and she kind of comes out of nowhere just being very hostile towards McGregor's character. I yeah, couldn't kind of figure yeah. this woman out. Like, what's your problem? 
the the real problem here stems to the point the film does not commit to the story because India and Moulin Rouge is not a film about its story and and the love story like it, it is that on surface level but not in the sense that it would actually be in any way really interested about telling a story it shows you the the ropes and the tropes and the cliches and it gives you the kind of a checklist list events in of a of a love, love triangle which is what Moulin Rouge plays but Moulin Rouge is not film that is being made because Bash Rumor wants to tell you a story and the story is not a driving force of of the film and because of that you know the the last thirds or, or the the end of second act the betrayal that happens is just something that happens because you know you you have to have a plot point in in storylines and musical has to have a story so <clears throat> there's a plot point this the second act has to end when the the heroes are on their lowest point so there, there's the lowest point has a story, qualifies musical. I'm willing to give a little bit more points uh, for Moulin Rouge uh, in the plot department because at least when you're looking at the musical parts of it, it's carrying on the story, which I love. When It's carrying on the story while it's doing the music, which makes perfect sense. It, it is, it is. Uh, but that, that is precisely because it is a musical and in musically you kind of do that. Like that is, that is... The aspects where Moulin Rouge is actually interested about committing into something. It, it it wants to be a musical. And because of that, the songs actually... There is a real consideration put into what songs to use and how to use them and how to mix them together and how to use them to tell a narrative. That's that's essentially what Moulin Rouge really wants to do. And, and the storyline and the characters are just kind of a, things you just have to have in your musical so that you can have a musical. Oh, no, 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 no. You got it all sideways. All sideways. Do you want to know the real commitment to which Moulin Rouge is committed to? And by all means. That is the cameraman and Bas Luhrmann, their addiction of shooting under the skirt of women. Okay, 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 but the... Not, not, this... not even... The, the, once again, in the end, like, like once you leave the opening opening half an hour of the film, there starts to be a surprisingly a lot of lack of panties. Like, if, if you want the panty shots, <clears throat> that the first half an hour is, is your place to go, because they don't tone down even that shit as the film goes on. Or, as Bas Luhrmann commented, the coral reef filled with tropical fishes is how we <laughs> <laughs> describe the girls shaking their fabrics. That 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 that's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> I felt a bit uncomfortable by the lady saying it on the camera on behalf of Bas Luhrmann. Okay, <laughs> it, it it would have been troubling if it had been Bas Luhrmann himself saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but to be fair, the the entertainment in Moulin Rouge was. Kind of getting under the woman's dresses. That was getting your money's worth. You were supposed to see under the garment to see the surprise that laid underneath. Because to be fair, there were different kind of surprises there. Sometimes they would wear pants underneath and sometimes they would not wear pants. And, you know, there would be colors and stuff. But that would be beside the point. That would be your, your prime time moment right there in the Moulin Rouge. 
Yeah, and in, in the film's defense also, it kind of does, at least in my opinion, it does play out really well and it does play off well with the hectic nature of the film itself. The swirling camera. The, the swirling camera and even, even the panty shots. Like, I, I do feel that they do fit in into the style of the movie and what the movie is doing. That is true. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Kidman Nicole. Satin's entrance. So, well, I'll let you go first. How will you shame this actress tonight, Henrik? I kind of don't have any reason to shame her. Because, by jolly, the entertainment networks and, and the entertainment news have already shamed her enough. Nicole Kidman is, is, is one of those, those sad... I, I don't even know sad. I, I, I don't really know what Nicole Kidman really is. But there, there is a tragic nature to Kidman's career, because Nicole Kidman, by God, does she ever try to be a Hollywood celebrity and to be in the A-tier? And she kinda is. Like, she yeah. puts in the effort, um, has worked with with Kubrick in, in Kubrick's last pieces, and 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 sings her own songs in Moulin Rouge and and all that jazz and yeah yeah Nicole Kidman is is considered to be a, an an A-list celebrity and a Hollywood star but at the same time you often come into with with hot takes and and column writings about how Nicole Kidman is quote unquote box office poison and when you look at Nicole Kidman's films, there is this this that there are some really odd pics where she has ended up like like Paperboy and other films that never really kind of broke the surface and became or or appeared as films deserving a star of her status. So Nicole Kidman is is kind of a at least in my opinion, Nicole Kidman is kind of a trapped into this this middle ground. Considered to be a star on paper, but not in practice. Shows up and shines every now and then in a in a groundbreaker film like Moulin Rouge or Ice White Shot, which is something that gets all the all the recognition and and gives the entertainment news networks the, the chance to once again mention her name in bold, big bold letters. And on the next week, it's once again an article about how Nicole Kidman is, is a box of, of his poison and how she's just barely a star bordering on nobody. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I can't see that I have seen anything that noteworthy from her. I have seen the others, but I never thought too much of it, sorry to say. I have seen the hours. I have practically nothing to say about it. So, but a lot of these cheek flicks that uh, is kind of the wrong place for me to be looking at anyway. Yeah, so I, I, on the other hand, I do quite like Nicole Kidman. Uh, I like... Me too. I, I, I do think she's very capable actress and I ha I do mm -hmm. like a lot of a lot of her films but at, at the same time I do kind of have a problem every now and then understand the films where she appears in yeah we were talking about the troubles of the production phase of the film there were a couple that we didn't mention like troubles in the complexity of the musical film they started to run out of time 
uh, in the stages and uh, Star Wars Phantom Menace was about to begin production on the so same sound stages that uh, Moulin Rouge was using. Oh yeah, Nicole Kidman. She said that if somebody would have asked her to join a musical, she would have said no. But then she heard that it's a Bas Luhrmann musical. And she thought that that sounds interesting. And she joined. What do we have on Ewan McGregor? Well, known, of course, for the Star Wars films. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that McGregor also is regretting those. <laughs> also known for, for defending the Attack of the Clones when it was coming out, making the infamous quote, the film is better than its, than its name. Actually, Attack of the Clones, I'm kind of weirdo on all fronts in all things Star Wars. First of all, I'm not a Star Wars fan, really, if I may say so, and uh, I probably won't. We're getting hate mail already. Um, but my favorites probably are Attack of the Clones and uh, Revenge of the Sith. So go chew on that one. Right. Yep. But uh, like you, you, you mean from prequels or, or the franchise? Pretty much the franchise. Pretty much the franchise, Henry. Okay, at, at this point, you can just, you know, get the fuck out of this podcast. I'm, I'm <laughs> taking over. Your, your time running this shit is over. Like. Uh, let's put some more water into the mill, as we say. What was the fucking Irving Kirshner catastrophe that he directed? The Empire Strikes Back. That's my least favorite. So there you go. That's uh, often said to be the best Star Wars of all time. Yeah, well, count it to you to be, if nothing, edgy. Should be stated that it's the same dude who also directed Never Say Never Again, so enough said. I think we should start to touch on the Duke as well, played by Richard Roxburgh. Who, well, I, I, I must m maintain, is way better actor than people give him credit. I like him, I like him. I especially like him in Mission Impossible 2, but uh, you're going to That's it, I'm, 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 <laughs> you, I, I'm quitting. Like... <laughs> Um, and other quality productions like Van Helsing and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. Poor Paul Roxburgh. He had, he had a, like, perhaps one of the worst early 2000s that you can have. Like, and hey. I, I, I do maintain that, that the, the bad name that Roxburgh has these days, it's not because of his acting. Once again, I do maintain the dude can act, but it's that one timeline in here, his career starting from 2000s that I would blame for the treatment that the dude gets today. Because his, his filmography, the 2000s, it was Mission Impossible 2, and then there was the high peak 2001 Moulin Rouge. Following that, 2003, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which was also shit. Then one Helsing stealth ending with fragile. Like that's 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 kind kind of a I'm kind of a astonished that the dude still manages to have a career after those peaks for the films where you appear in. Best henchman of all time, Hugh Stamp. Best Dracula of all time. <laughs> so at 22 minutes to get back to Moulin Rouge is the moment when Satine faints 
but it doesn't take that long until we get her back into the business, we get to the private room. The hilarity level of this scene is quite off the charge. I mean, I had fun, and this is my favorite scene of the film, I can tell you already that much. There's a lot of things happening here. It's very chaotic, and Nicole Kidman is absolutely hilarious here. It's a kind of a, as quoted from chairman of Fox Film Entertainment, Tom Rothman, an escalating series of impossibilities, which is what Baz Luhrmann does. We have all the sexual innuendo as well, of course. It's quite long, and I'd like you to be comfortable in this typical McGregor voice of absurd levels of innocence. Well, well since you are hitting those lines, I would say even the, the more worse one is it's quite modern what I do, which is <laughs> quite clearly hinting at anal sex. <laughs> but the film kind of does get into the business partly. We have a we have the infamous nipple flash. I think it's infamous because it's a nipple flash. Twice, and they kept it in the, in a PG film somehow. And it's still there. Nobody even digitally touched it. It's still there. And that's also one good reason to revisit Moulin Rouge every, every so often. But it's time to sing and finish the love song with Nicole Kidman speaking in British accent, by the way, at the, the best she can. I can't believe it. I'm in love. Yeah, and uh, neither does anyone else believe it, for that matter. No, because in, in Moulin Rouge, it, it, it once again takes place in, in the musical land. You just fall in love all of a sudden. <laughs> it's, it's one song, and that's all it takes. Yeah, holy shit, I'm in love. But then things get kind of backtracked a bit, because McGregor says that he's a writer. A writer? Interesting moment, because... I thought that the character of Satin would not care about like, social status that much. Thought she would be kind of a nice lady underneath. But this is not about, I think, about even the social class. It's just the fact that she was playing with the wrong person and seems to be quite agitated by that. Yeah, the, the, the gist here is that Satin is supposed to woo over the, the rich duke so that the duke would throw in money at Moulin Rouge to transfer Moulin Rouge into a real theater. For some reason, which is never explained, they just want to do that and they can't afford it from their own pocket for some reason, which is never explained. Like, once again, don't look at the story too tightly. No, no. <laughs> yeah, rather just concentrate on the absurdity of it all. Of course, there was this one part where Satine's character said that, was it something like, you know, you know, one of those, those poor writers who are hopelessly intrigued by the concept of love? And yes, exactly that kind of a person. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think she is obsessed about money. Because, well, obviously, at the end of the day, she will not be. So nevertheless, she will turn around and choose the penniless boy. Anyway, there's an emergency rehearsal. We still continue with the generally happy mood of the film. Duke has an absolute what-the-fuck moment during the song, saying, like, it's a little bit funny, this feeling inside. This was this was so weird. And I thought it would be followed by, like, confused looks from everybody in the audience in the room, but that never happens. No, because the entire film is so crazy that Duke, he, even though all his absurd antics still manages to come off at least rel relatively normal in the film's universe. Yeah. <laughs> the, 
the, the perverted looks of Duke in this film, they are... I really like the performance here throughout the film of Duke. Like I said, Roxburgh is much better actor than people give him credit to. Yeah. And, and bear in mind, Molan Rouge was actually his early 2000 film lineup. It's, it's one of the few, like one of the two or three films that people actually consider that, or, or where they did like Roxburgh. But we have a creeper climbing on top of a building right after what at least is suggested by the film is uh, exchanging long gazes via windows that somehow are now adjacent so they can look at each other, McGregor and Nicole Kidman's character. Yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so something that the film also doesn't commit to is common architecture. Like the buildings just appear to be in places all of a sudden and I, I never even managed to figure out where the goddamn dick cheese, the elephant itself, is supposed to be. And how tall is Mulan Rouge? I thought it was not tall at all, but there's also a balcony somewhere there. Yep, yep. Like, like, like the, the locations, the buildings, the elephant, Mulan Rouge, they all kind of, they teleport all over the place, they switch places, <laughs> they switch sizes. It's... Yeah. The, the, the architecture of, of the film locations, it doesn't stay constant at all. But this uh, building on which McGregor now climbs onto and on top of it there is uh, somehow Nicole Kidman. Yeah, this uh, McGregor keep creeper just climbs on it and shocks the hell out of the satin. We're getting kind of into the dark, uncertain part of the film. We don't know how she's feeling towards him. We will get mood-wise a little bit higher up once again because they start collaborating, making this play, but uh, there are troubles ahead. Why live life from dream to dream and dread today when dreaming ends? This is what Satine says from the window. Quite like that quote. This is right from the uh, only original song that was that is in the film but was not originally written for Moulin Rouge because it was written for an earlier film project that uh, Bas Luhrmann was working on. And therefore, that's why it didn't get the Oscar nomination. It was disqualified because of this reason. There's a whole kind of a polyclap episode that you could make about the weird and odd rules that goes into having your film nominated for Academy Awards. I bet. Satin says that you're going to be bad for business, I can tell. And then they kiss. McGregor is typing again. Uh, McGregor looks better with the beard. But where is it really the next scene? This is moving quite fast in my notes. Well, like I said, this might be a little bit of a short episode unless I keep uh, making more sentences and trying to keep this up a little bit longer, blah, 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 blah. But there is the introduction of uh, manservant Warner. <laughs> His name is Warner, actually. And he has less lines than chocolate in this film. And he looks like Harvey Weinstein. Kinda. <laughs> a little, yeah. But mo mo more notably, this is the scene where Ziegler signs over the ownership papers of Moulin Rouge to that dude. Yeah. As a collateral for for some kind of a lo loan that Ziegler needs in order to transfix Moulin Rouge into a, into a proper theater. Once again, why that is, never explained. Because... By, by all means, the way how film has portrayed Moulin Rouge, it actually looks like Moulin Rouge, the nightclub, is beaming with money. Right. 
everything yeah. is going fine. And uh, I don't know if uh, this is yet like the world famous Moulin Rouge, but certainly pulling an audience. And and more notably, it's pulling rich audience. Like this yeah. is once once again, this is tying down what I said earlier that the film doesn't commit to a theme and just uses big words and and big images. Like Moulin Rouge talks a good game, how the place is some kind of a debauched heaven of nighttime pleasures. That's the Ziegler's whole introduction, what Moulin Rouge is. And it's it's supposed to be, on paper, on surface, it's supposed to be a place where every kink and perversion can be satisfied as, as long as you have the cash. But the film itself, like I mentioned, doesn't show you any bit of sex. It's just a bunch of innuendos and panty shots here and there. And the girls who are being shown working in Moulin Rouge, they are all being showered with diamonds and stacks of cash. So even though going by Ziegler's words, or simply by using words, the, the film states that these girls are sex workers. But what the film shows you is that is is not these girls being mistreated by the wealthy elite, like sex, sex workers are, but instead they are just quote-unquote courtesans that just appear to be beautiful and apparently have invented a really good business. Yeah, it crossed my mind that it sounds kind of crazy to think about that Nicole Kidman would accept to play in a role where she actually has to be a sex worker. But... Once again... A sex worker only in the terms that Ziegler says that he is or she is. Yeah. Nicole Kidman is the, the only quote-unquote prostitute in the film who actually is expected to sleep with someone. But never does in the film. And never does. Never does. And that also ties into the character of Ziegler who also on surface level acts as a satin's pimp in a sense. Like and and pimp to the all all the other girls in Moulin Rouge, but the way once again the way how the film portrays the certain relationship between Satine and Ziegler, it's more compassionate and and fatherly. Like the, the the Ziegler by all means is more kind of a circuit father to to the girls of Moulin Rouge, or or just a really close business partner. And and the whole abusing relationship of 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 a pimp is it's never brought out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we have a little bit of a rehearsal here in between. With the line from McGregor's mouth, thank you for curing me of this thing called love forever. And more or less the same line repeats near the end of the film in a more dark circumstances. It's already around here now, it's in the middle parts of the film, 58 minutes or so tallying with the writer scene. So McGregor makes an excuse that they need to rehearse. So they go upstairs for a little kissy kiss. And unfortunately, Siedler is able to see that and then approaches Satin about it. And that's where things kind of start to fall apart. That She has to stop doing this. But Siedler keeps on making excuses for her, but now for different reasons, as we see in the next scene called She's Confessing, where indeed Duke is waiting for Satine to arrive for a little bit of a dinner. She doesn't because she has had one of those 
fainting episodes once again. And this leads into what has to be one of the best uses of Madonna's like a virgin. <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I love the dialogue, like, like a virgin, you know. Yeah, especially the, the parts of the song which, which Ziegler simply talks out as a spoken dialogue. That's really kind of, a, I would say that's cream of the crop of, of, <laughs> of like a virgin presentation. Yeah, when Duke is suddenly in, in a close-up during the musical, and he's like, feels so good inside. <laughs> I don't know what, what that expression even is. So like, seemed like more like disgusted about the whole thing. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know either. Like, there, there, there's kind of a, there, there, there's this weird mix of asexual and, and homosexual vibes that you get from the Duke. Kind mm. of from how the Duke always looks when when it's talked that he should have sex with a woman. The Duke almost seems like like disgusted or or bored with the co- whole concept of sleeping with with a woman. And and the whole, whole Duke's obsession with Satine and and the kind of the the need the Duke Duke shows that he has to sleep with her. It, it almost comes off like. It's just Duke trying to tell to himself that he's still heterosexual. <laughs> yeah, those uh, lick at the lick licking impressions, all of it is priceless. Well, actually, it's kind of a kind of a disturbing musical piece that you see here. Uh huh. It is. It is, and it's it's surprisingly perverted. Yeah, <laughs> Mademoiselle is dying. She doesn't know it yet, but the others do. But basically, the whole film knows that Satine is dying of tuberculosis, except Satine and Christian. Yeah, somehow. Oh, somehow. <laughs> 107, quote, you don't have to lie to me. We have already the the first fight, the first conflict of the film. It didn't take too long. Well, it did take like over an hour, but here we are. First couple drama, and well, maybe she doesn't have to lie to Christian, but she certainly has to lie with the Duke, or that's the assumption here, but it never goes into fruition. Yeah, but but uh, on top of she doesn't have to lie with Christian, she also doesn't have to lie to Christian. And that's something that mm. kind of goes into the, the whole love triangle plot that the film has. Basically, all the conflict within the film could be easily resolved if, if Satine mm. and Christian would just talk to each other. Exactly. By the way, what do you think about the whole Nicole Kidman trying to pull off the British accent here? I think it somehow makes it more natural when you have McGregor's accent and when we're talking about Paris, France, and I I think it has to be a British accent that you're going to use there. I really don't know. Didn't ever bother me. Yeah. Come on, it's, it's, it's a nightclub in Paris, you can just ask what the hell are all these people doing there? <laughs> if if, if, if so, something, I would say Nicole Kidman should have gone for for a French accent, location-wise, uh-huh. or or in, in the name of committing to the location, which is something that the film doesn't do. But well, I'm, I'm also, at the same time, I'm extremely happy that Nicole Kidman didn't try to do French accent because usually that is something that just undoes your performance completely. It's, so like it's yeah. notoriously hard to pull off. Well, this is the moment of the evil henchwoman 
who appears with this quote. This ending's silly. Why would the courtesan go for the penniless writer? Whoops, I mean the sitar player. Yeah, the, the second act betrayal, which doesn't make any sense, but is there simply because, because you know, has to have a plot in order to qualify as musical. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good point that uh, this woman kind of appears out of nowhere, well, quite, quite literally, and then makes this uh, revelation to him, but the Duke seems to be too stupid to fully understand it anyway, but still makes some limitations on the show, or modifies the show into his own liking to change the ending. Yeah, the, if you're going to introduce such a big plot point, the definitely the evil henchwoman should have gotten a little bit more explanation. Yeah. In, in, a, in a film that cares about its storyline, most definitely, yeah. Once again, this is something where Moulin Rouge's decision, intentional decision, not to commit to its storyline, kind of a place to its advantage. Because it's hard to criticize the film for not playing its, its storyline's plot points pro out, out properly when the film just is, uh-huh, yeah, I, I'm not... And I'm doing that intentionally. All I care about is the style, man. Yeah. Yeah, the courtesan should now choose the Maharaja. Satine here decides that the romantic evening is to take place with the Duke henceforth. Yeah. This is also the moment where where the film starts to get a hell of a lot more darker in terms of yes. what happens in it. The following dance scene of this, which is the Roxanne song number is is the darkest and most violent of the songs that this film has. There's like real aggression in the way how the dancers move and how the song is being sang and also the attempted rape starts to appear. Oh yeah. Yes, this happens when Satin is trying to coax Duke to keep the fairy tale ending, so to speak. Duke first agrees, but then changes his mind when he notices that Satine is eyeing the penniless writer from that balcony. The the location where Duke is supposed to be, it's, it's the Coffee Castle, if if I'm correct. Like it's been name dropped once. It it's 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 there and then it's not. Like it appears and it disappears. Yeah. Satine comes to McGregor and they plan to run away together. They certainly could have done that. You know, just take a train together. And, well, that could have been also kind of a sad ending. Don't know which one is more preferable. But they could have still run together away. And McGregor pr would have probably saved his life anyway. And then our princess of the night would have been dead in the train. And, you know, maybe Duke would have still followed him to the ends of the earth. Who knows? But that could have been an alternative take. So Duke's way it is. Uh, Duke didn't get by, so somebody needs to die. Story uh, starting to reach the boiling point altogether. And Duke does say that the, the show will end his way and she will come to him after the curtain falls or he will have McGregor killed. Satine agrees to lie to McGregor in order to save his life. As th things escalate to this boiling point, Siddler tells Satine that she will indeed die. So, she agrees to go to lie. Yeah, for actually no apparent reason, because just as well, she could just tell Christian that what the situation is. I'm, I'm going to drop dead anytime soon. And so it 
like we we can stay as secret lovers for the well two hours that I'm still gonna be alive, and there Good doesn't point. really have to be all 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 this this heartache and feeling hurt. Good damn point. <laughs> and uh, this is why the train escape kind of seems more sense. Yeah. But then again, you know, the film takes impressions from from previous operas like La Poème and La Traviata. And from La Traviata, it kind of goes to the plot that there has to be the heart. The heart-breaking breakup has to happen in the story. So it, I guess it also has to happen here because influence. I guess so, because that's what happens. She utters the lines, the truth is... I am the Hindi courtesan, and I choose the Maharaja. That's how the story really ends. Yeah. And Kristen takes that well. He, I don't know what he's doing. He, <laughs> no, I, nobody knows what he's doing. He's advancing the plot. That's what he's doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's sitting there in his bed and shouting to his friend. Is it? Is it now the uh, Toulouse who? Yeah, Toulouse. Precisely. To lose, who has nothing to lose, but gets to be shouted at anyway for no re- real reason. For, for no no real reason. But <laughs> it's to lose who has planted the seeds of doubt in McGregor's mind, and not the performance of Satine just moments earlier. So he decides to somehow mysteriously break into the Moulin Rouge, most likely using a helicopter which didn't yet exist, and uh, try to break in via the by the top of Moulin Rouge. Oh, I, I just thought that he climbed like everybody else does in this film all the goddamn time. Like what? Some kind of an Indiana Jones trick to get from house to house? Well, work with that goddamn elephant. Everybody climbed that beast and it's goddamn round and it's in, basically impossible to tie a rope into anything. Like like I said, also something that the, the film doesn't commit to is the laws of physics. Tell me more. Well, no, well, nothing really tell. I mean, that the elephant is unclimbable, is my chest. And people still <laughs> manage to climb that beast in the, in the beginning of the film. Like, Toulouse and his rope climbed it. No effort yeah. at all. Was barely an inconvenience. Christian climbed it. It's more of a case, who didn't climb the elephant? Yeah, yeah. There we, there we have the clueless Mr. Warner trying to do do his hench stuff, but he sucks at it, so McGregor is able to get past him for now. Maybe he used a jetpack. I, I'm, I'm guessing he just used the script. Well, no, he's experienced with those. He he must definitely is. Script is essentially just a bunch of mini chlorines in your blood, so... And Christian, and, or McGregor most certainly does have a lot of mini chlorines. But the biggest question... Regardless of all this kind of medicines here, what, what is what is happening here? Like this is, is where McGregor tranquilizes his best friend here, yeah, in order to replace him in the play or, or what? He just uh, downs one of the guys, N- not the Toulouse guy, but this 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 taller it, guy. It, who... it, it's the narcoleptic Argent- Ar- Argentinian who has a, a oh. narcolepsy attack. Once again, because you know plot. But okay, but like narrative-wise, still, why is it there? (laughs) Well, it's there so that Christian can steal the dude's clothes, and he needs the clothes for 
nothing particular. No. And the Argentinian is on the cast for no reason at all, since he's narcoleptic, so he's a, <laughs> like a, a big danger on a stage play. But there he is. Like I said, like I said, uh, the, the plot in Moulin Rouge is just kind of there. The point is with the style and the visual images and all this with all the songs. But like he strips naked one of his best friends and then he doesn't even have any plan to do anything with the said clothes except at the last moment it's convenient because he accidentally gets to the stage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. He, he's, yeah. Christian essentially uh, steals the clothes because that jacket makes the image when he appears on the stage a, a bit more grandiose. That there are bling-blings on the jacket. Yeah. And that, that's, that's all that matters in Moulin Rouge. It's a good image, so it flies by. Okay, well, they accidentally get to the stage. And Henry Marie Ramon Toulouse Lautrec Montfa finds out the murder plot. McGregor is now on the stage and others the Thank you for curing me. Thank you for curing me from my ridiculous obsession of love. Which is kind of the ultimate douchebag move to make. I felt film. so bad. Uh, don't do that. You've been such of a kind person, except for. Yeah, precisely, you goddamn shit back. Like, I, I get that. Christian is is heartbroken here because melodramatic musical plot, but still I've paid my whore. Yeah, yeah, that that's that that pretty much sunks Christian. He almost becomes as bad or if not worse character than the Duke himself, and the Duke was trying to goddamn kill people. Yeah, that was really low to bring the whole the, the courtesan whore prostitute angle into the picture. Especially in front of the entire crowd. Right. (sighs) But Satine starts uh, singing and then first McGregor is not too impressed about it, but ultimately turns around and all you need is love and whatever is going to be sung. And Satine gets one of those uh, attacks. Once again, she she faints and says that, uh, as previously mentioned, that he should write about her. Poor writer can forevermore torment himself with this tragedy. And maybe turn it into a bestseller, which means career in this business. Yeah, helps with those tears. Yep. And, uh, well, uh, to quote Casino Royale, which doesn't work at all on any level in this film, but the, the bitch is dead, and that's the film. That is the film. The Duke most likely uses his ownership of Moulin Rouge and shuts the whole place down. I guess, seeing how in the very opening shots of the film it looks derelict when Christian starts to write his memoir and, well, end credits. Well, yeah, and just remember to keep loving everyone very much is the teaching of the film at the end. Mm. Or, or something is the teaching of the film. Yeah. Like like, like, like I said, it, it uses the word love, but it doesn't really say anything about love. Outside of, you know, pop song quotations. Eric, this is the moment where you're supposed to cry your heart out, I think. Mm, or something. Dramatic-wise, the film never actually did that much anything to me, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering how it's affecting people around the world. Like, is this really something that uh, grabs people by the heartstrings with this kind of a very 
mediocre love story with some with which is amplified with with pretty colors and uh, uh, cinematography and acting. I don't know. And I would say that's precisely the case. Like it's mm. it's not the story that is pulling people's heartstrings. It's it's the visuals and and the sound of it's the image and the sound of the film that actually pulls the heartstrings. People just think that it's the love story because a film says it has a love story. Yeah, thank you for bringing into my attention all of the many points where indeed the film was doing really ham-fisted and weak bridges to complete its mandatory script. But I like Moulin Rouge for most of the running time. I I do too. Like, e- even though I, I do criticize the movie here for the plot points and so, so forth, but I, I still do maintain the film kind of does all that on purpose and the main focus is is on on the on being as extravagant and as crazy as much MTV as you can be as a musical and that's the one front that really matters in in Molan Rouge and on that front I would say the film really does pull it off yeah it's a pleasure to listen to and I felt that all of the musical parts come very naturally to the scene. I never felt that I was force-fed this scene. We have to have this scene here because it's a musical type of feeling. No, uh, but at the end of the day, this film is pretty much the same film that was done like 50 years ago. If you go all the way back to uh, Singing in the Rain, it's essentially the same goddamn thing. Mm-hmm. But I would say that I enjoy Moulin Rouge way more as a, as a story even as tacky as it is. Mm, yeah, I, I don't know about as a story. Well, maybe that's the wrong word to use, but as a, the, the entire package. Yeah, yeah. Story-wise, nothing in Moulin Rouge is, is no way new. Like, what, what, what Moulin Rouge is as, as a film, like, or, or as a story, as a character... In all those aspects, it's just, you know, it's rehashing age-old material from basically every love, every love story, every drama film, every musical, every opera ever made. When, when I name-dropped La Bohème and La Traviata, I really did that on purpose. Because I would say that the inspiration that Moulin Rouge draws from opera world most definitely is, is from La Bohème and La Traviata. From La Bohème, it, it borrows its kind of a spirit, the downtrodden artistic bohemian crowd. And from La Traviata, it borrows its baseline plot elements. That the fallen woman, a love story something, then a person who says that a love story can't be... Tragic ending. So, yeah, on its core, Moulin Rouge is basically every love story ever told and nothing else. Yeah, yeah, that it is. My favorite part is, uh, I would say, the first, I would say, the 30 minutes, including the entire private room moments, along with the song when the Duke arrives and all that. I mean, uh, that that is uh, all a great joy to watch. From the beginning, introductory kind of a 3D animation to the grandiose Moulin Rouge and the fantastic uh, introduction of Nicole Kidman in the role and looking sexy as hell, no doubt about it. And the costume design, I think, is uh, absolutely, you know, well, it's of course going to be lavish and stunning, 
because it's Mulan Rouge and that's exactly what it is. And even I, who generally don't that much pay attention to clothing in films, really, because I'm not an expert on any level on, on this, I, I was kind of stopped by the red dress of Nicole Kidman in this movie. And kind of every single costume that she was wearing. <laughs> Great stuff. Yeah, which she also changes from scene to scene without any explanation, except, you know, we have to use as many costume changes as possible. I don't mind. And, uh, uh, I don't mind neither. Like, goddamn, you know. Yeah. I mean, by all means, use all the black lace you want. <laughs> yeah, um, you could argue that, the, the, well, if somebody still is watching Oscars and uh, values those. Well, anyway, Moulin Rouge won one of those Oscars for the costume design. One Oscar for Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design. Of course, I kind of feel weird about this because we're talking about this kind of extravaganza that Moulin Rouge is. And then you might have something more casual. I don't know, some fantastic movie, nonetheless, like Days of Heaven from uh, Terence Malick. So what's it going to have? Like, it's not going to be such of an explosive extravaganza as we have here. So how are you going to compare these kind of movies? But then, of course, the critics are going to the ones that are able to vote, they will be voting for the extravaganza, I would assume, because the, well, you know, the clothing is going to serve a special purpose in this film. I don't know if it's if it's fair if you're not able to look in a balanced way into all of the films and their costumes. Of course, Moulin Rouge has explosive costume design, but you might have something more that is more casual and not so interesting, perhaps, in in another movie, but all the same, it's it's something that somebody put their hearts into to make maybe the street punk look like a street punk. You know what I mean? So I think these categories are more or less horseshit. Well, Academy Awards altogether these days are more or less horseshit. Someone could argue that they have always kind of been. The whole root of, of Academy Awards essentially in, in the end as far as I've understood was that it, it has always just been a marketing stunt. The the whole award was made up so that basically film studios could art advertise their own film and somehow translate it to the possible audiences that that these films we have made kind of a merit to be seen and you should go and see these movies because they are important movies. So essentially Academy Awards is just a marketing gimmick. Ouchie, ouch. And with those words, it would be the quickies. Well, for my part, my favorite performance would flow on to Nicole Kidman as the seductive and uh, impressive uh, British accent-using beauty who certainly can act. Most definitely she can. I really like all the main cast actors in, in this film. I really would want to give give the best performance to Richard Roxburgh, who has been rudely maligned in, and abused in basically in, in in film reporting circles. But in the end, I had to go with Jim Broadbent as Harold Zittler, who I think was the most ex- extravagant, the most electric personality in this film. Yeah. Well. Yes. Also. A very good performance. Yep. But uh, regarding the favorite scene, uh, well, actually, there's no question. It's uh, definitely the private room scene 
when the lovebirds first meet and all the comedy is uh, at its gold point. Yes, uh, it's right there. Rome, it's most definitely the Moulin Rouge opening can can see. Or that, but it's just way too enjoyable, the private. Uh, the film has a couple of pretty great quotes, but I'm going to give this to this uh, random lady who starts to spread the seeds of mistrust everywhere and poison. Quote, don't worry, Shakespeare. You'll get your ending once the Duke gets his end in. Me on my end. I'm gonna actually give this one to Ziegler when he describes the Flick Lab film podcast by stating a magnificent plant, tremendous, stupendous, gargantum, bedazzlement, <laughs> essential ravishment. That is just like our podcast. <laughs> I also like that. This one is it by the stewardess who is going to play the main part. Never fall in love with the woman who sells herself. It always ends bad. <clears throat> Sorry, but I don't know why he said bad. It's out of place. It, but it, hilarious. It, it's I'm, I'm guessing that's all that Argentinian blood. <laughs> Regarding kills, this is going to be brutal. And um, at the end of the day, I have decided that there's no fucking contest. So setting. Yeah. Yeah. Satin kind of takes it away. Yeah. Yeah. Being the only kill in the film. And even even that is kind of kill quotation marks. Right. People really don't die in our latest picks for the films. That's where you get creative. So I chose Satin. God damn it. So Henrik, random confusing question. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love... And be loved. Oh shit. In return. And the greatest thing you ever learn is quantum physics. I was about to ask if it's true or false, this <laughs> statement, but thank you for pointing it already out. I was already about to call you goddamn reductionist and all, but <laughs> I didn't fall for this love trap of the film. <laughs> what drew me out of the film was... Definitely you and McGregor. Sorry. What the fuck, man? <laughs> <laughs> I hate to get this finally, but it's going to happen at some point. For example, now you and McGregor. I just, I just can't stand you and McGregor. Usually, when he's on, I just try to shut the TV off. I don't know what it is, but uh, there's a couple of factors that make me feel like this. From girls, it would be Emma Watson, Helen Mirren. And more guys, it would be Robert De Niro. Am I already fired from this podcast? Yeah, uh, yeah, most definitely. Get the fuck out, seriously. <laughs> Close the recording device. I, As we have noticed in this podcast, I may have some unpopular opinions. But yeah, 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 yeah. There's certainly more. As Robin Williams. God. I just... Maybe I have said it before to you, but I think he comes off as disingenuous in most of the roles that he plays. I just can't I just can't cope with the, that con- constant smirking that he puts on. I think Henrik already dropped off. Oh you I'm, did? I'm I'm I'm, <laughs> I, I'm being petrified by the shock. <laughs> but I did like some music of Robbie Williams. Okay, enough fire in this podcast. And also uh, what drew me out, I think it's the the simplicity of the story for sure to the level where it starts to drag after the first hour, actually. I was checking my clock around, was it one hour and seven minutes? And there I felt that, okay, we kind of know where this is going. And we have seen the best bits. 
and that's exactly what it was. So second hour grew me out a bit. Certainly, and I, I on my end, I had none of those problems when when watching the film. I okay. nothing drew me out. I didn't check my watch, and I I still do maintain that accusing the film for its kind of an empty story is also kind of a lackluster. It's kind of an empty accusation to be made because the film really doesn't care about its story to begin with. The story I know. is just there. I know. It's also that the, the film, I think it's just not tight enough when you compare it to the, certainly for the first 30 minutes, but the first hour is a very easy watch. But after second hour, I go, oh yeah, okay, these traits are going to come next and these traits. But still, yeah, yeah, visually in- enjoyable. Uh, to me, that wasn't a problem. I, 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 do, I, I do admit that the film does that. It's, it is most kind of ludicrous during its, its first 30 minutes. And from there, the, that point onwards, it starts to get kind of... A, it, it starts to keep its feet on the ground more and more. But that still didn't take away this kind of a two-hour-long music video sensation that I got from the film. Mm, for a musical film, it's surprising how well it was keeping me in its claws. And so so, so for somebody like me, that's uh, pretty amazing that I was able to keep focused. What drew me in, let's talk about something more nice then. So like mentioned, the costumes and the visual craziness in the first hour and the introduction of Nicole Kidman. And like mentioned as well, I, I like that the musical scenes mostly carry on the story. Anything from you to add? Mm, to me, it would once again be the can-can scene. In the scissors department, were I to be touching this film, how would I possibly improve the film? Maybe add more extravaganza to the second hour. And the film could be a little bit faster after, at least after Satin tries to hurt McGregor to keep him away. And then again, I don't really see the point of these types of films, essentially. Like we have mentioned many times, it's kind of a love story we've seen hundreds of times, but just with some music on it, and but executed with a lot of money and skill, but still. But what's the point really at the end of the day in the sense that does this movie really speak to anyone that much? What is so mind-blowing here that we haven't seen to death already before? Apart from the extravaganza and the beautiful cinematography and the colors and the costumes and the acting. But well, I guess that is people's argument for the film. Those. Well, that actually... Would, that that bridges my... My answer bridges us immediately to... Would, you, would I recommend this film? And I... In the past, I did recommend Moulin Rouge. And I most definitely do recommend it even today. You asked what is so special about the film and I would answer to you that it's the fact that it is as I mentioned before it's an audiovisual masterpiece it's it's mm. not a masterpiece cinema it's not masterpiece storytelling it's not masterpiece character depiction like all in those departments that the film is rather lacking but when it comes to audiovisual presentation I do consider this film to be a masterpiece. I, that's something yeah. that I would say that that's what the film, uh, the film-going audience has found did find as being special in this film. And the second point, which is something that I've noticed 
and most definitely started to think back on when when I watched Moulin Rouge is that we, the two of us in, in this podcast, we talk a hell of a lot about about acting and directors and DP and ADR flops. We, we don't talk sound that often, except when, you know, somebody fucks it up in sound, sound department. And something that we most definitely do not talk about is editing and editor. And sadly, Moulin Rouge is a film that was made in the editing. Oh, yeah. you, you can say what you will about the the cinematography. Sure, it's it's a lavish, it's it's, it's a luscious. But the the where the energy comes from to this film, it comes from the editing, and that's an I, I would say that's an important notion to be made because editing also is an art form. You don't often think about the editing decisions that are being made made in in film, but those are real decisions and there is there, there is skill and there is craft to your editing that uh, you you have to connect with the film on an emotional level in order to be able to edit properly you have to have a really high engineering understanding of your tools in order to be to be able to make a good edit you you have to be 50% engineer and a 50% of an artist to really properly edit a film. And the amount of work that the editor has to have put in in Moulin Rouge, I, I would say it has to go on in, in hundreds of hours. Seeing Simply going on by how many cuts that the first half an hour has. Like it's packed with cuts. There, there, there yeah. are millions of cuts going on. There, there are more cuts in, in the first 30 minutes of this piece than there is in some films altogether. So not not just an audiovisual masterpiece, but it it merits to check out Moulin Rouge simply because of the editing also. I give it to you. It's it's unbelievable to watch the introductory, the can-can scene, as you said it in Moulin Rouge. Something that should be also noted is that Bas Luhrmann was asking for extra time from the studio because he was not able to finish the film anyhow for the December market and it was delayed until springtime somewhere, right? And so they got more post-production time, which I believe, well, it usually involves a lot of editing time, obviously. And I'm glad that they got that extra time because... I would say that definitely shows. It, it it does, and I'm 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 surprised that they were able to get the editing time because I'm I'm altogether I'm surprised that the studio even greenlit Moulin Rouge because m- film musicals are something that the studio system these days kind of hate. I'm not necessarily with a burning passion, but they most definitely they don't want to be making those. So. Altogether, the fact that Barcelona was able to get get all his millions to make Moulin Rouge, and then on top of that, to be granted the extra time in post production, it's it's kind of a it's 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 these days it's kind of a once in a lifetime chance for a director, especially if you are making a film musical. Yeah, the music video, perhaps kind of a music video chopping style of those days is there well there's a lot of fast cuts but it's never in an intrusive way 
it's really easy to follow the film and your eyes never saying like no that felt awkward no and neither does your ears like uh, if I remember correctly in my previous review for the Vitoan website I mentioned the green genie or whatever it was that came out of the absinthe bottle and the smells like teen spirit moment on the can can introductory scene and in both of those cases it also is the, the, there is a really heavy kind of a transitions in in the the green fairy sequence they used Kylie Minogue's and Ozzy Osbourne singing together like they they mixed the sound uh, the audio tracks on top of each other so that it became one one sound and i i think that the effect there is is magnificent and i also think that way how smells like teen spirit is is kind of mixed into the song also plays really well there is a there's a quite strong shift from one song to the next as as the smells like teen spirit chorus hits hits the audio track but that transition still is something that it doesn't grind your ear. You, it feels natural, even though the musical jump is a rather, rather high. Let's give the credits where the credits are due. Cinematography in this film was by Donald McAlpine and editing by Jill Wilcock, who has contributed to other Buzz Luhrmann productions, Romeo plus Juliet. There's also Road to Perdition and The Dressmaker and Elizabeth. Yeah. But would I recommend this film? Yeah, because of, like you said, kind of the visual appeal, this animated quality, fast-paced and pleasant cutting keeps it going. It's kind of, it's actually, actually kind of special that we mention cutting in this podcast. And it, one of the reasons may be that when the cutting is good, you usually don't really notice it. And when the cutting is fantastic, well, that's kind of one way to notice it. Unfortunately, usually it's when you notice editing is it's when it's bad, but not the case here. Yeah, that's that's the tragedy that comes to the editors. If you do a good job, that means that nobody actually notices what you just did. Yeah, like like hell, I even have to confess that I didn't use the notice editing myself, even though I have for a long time considered myself as a film buff. I only started to realize exactly how hard and complicated process film editing is when I started to dabble with film editing and do, should, yeah. do small edits myself. So, you know, me being on high horse here on Moulin Rouge and, you know, calling light to the editors, is it's like, I, I can't really take credit for that. Kind of actually should feel ashamed of myself for the fact that I it took me such a long time before I started to really notice and appreciate film cutting and editors. Oh my god, yes. You think you're taking some kind of Alfred Hitchcockian level master shots and then you go to the editing booth and fuck, nothing is fitting together. Then you go back to shoot the next day and kind of the same thing. So here's also one thing for anybody who wants to make their... Film of any kind, please prepare a storyboard before you do anything. Yeah, also helps a shit lot of ton for the VFX guys who then have to come and, you know, put everything into your film. Yeah, but did you still have three adjectives? Ah, uh, I most definitely do. 
Mine would come to powerful, special and feverish. The three adjectives that I would go by for the film would be colorful, sensual and, yes, goofy. And you really know you are watching Moulin Rouge when? When you can't, can't, can't just plainly express very simple things to your special someone. <laughs> okay, you really know you're watching Moulin Rouge when Ewan McGregor jumps on you singing, palette showing and mouth wide open. We could be lovers! And you try to desperately hide behind your couch. Come on, this was most definitely even McGregor's show. I mean, this is the film that showcases you that Obi-Wan can sing. <laughs> uh, I thought he was kind of a icky, yucky, too loving, too naive. Well, I think it's hopefully just the performance, but in many roles that McGregor does, he uh, comes off as kind of a too saintly, fatherly, and loving and naive. Yeah, in in that itch, I might be tempted to recommend some of his later parts and the transporting rooms. Yeah, there are those. That is correct. Okay, well, uh, there's this uh, section called podcast recommendations on my list. So we we want to support, as mentioned, like the podcast community and also want our listeners to know more about where to find funny episodes related to films maybe actually learn something in the process as well as we like to do to our listeners here one such podcast my number one for this episode would be first and foremost a russophiles unite podcast <laughs> yes russophiles unite podcast not that i would be putin minded or anything uh, it's hosted by former Moscow resident Ali Pitts, and he's joined by guests in as far as I've seen in every episode. And they review Russian films, surprise, surprise, about once a month. There's uh, great insights and uh, inter interesting guests, people who live inside Russia or somehow are connected to Russia. And you can find it on their Podbean page. It's uh, russophilesunite.podbean.com. They are also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and you can also support them and buy them a coffee at ko-fi, like coffee.com. In fact, I just did, because why the hell not? Then we have my second uh, recommendation for the evening that's called Movie Muggin. This is kind of an unusual situation where you have a father and a son talking about movies every week. I think it's uh, kind of hilarious to see it this kind of a father-son dynamics, this relationship where they kind of, it seems seemingly without borders, they are discussing any aspects in films and they're cracking jokes and about sex or whatever the subject matter may be on the same wavelengths. And that is some great chemistry right there. Just a pleasure to listen to. None of that, you know, pedantic shit that we have in our podcast, but just full-on entertainment. And they pick one film per week to talk about old or new that's my recommendations for this week okay so go on and check some other quality podcasts on top of ours yeah just don't forget about us yeah but yeah that was Moulin Rouge not necessarily the strongest the flick lab episode um I would say most definitely not one of our longest ones and I maybe kind of even feel a bit bad for the fact that I let you go on with this film pick for our first film musical to be covered in, in, in the podcast because of the nightmarish 
production that the this episode in the end I knew would turn out simply because of the fact the way how Moulin Rouge as a film is and how much it's just pure plastic and pure surface and style. And on that record, I do kind of want to, in the end, I guess, express my apologies to you, Kari. What? Yeah, for tying you down with, with Moulin Rouge or the film musicals. Because I, I kind of do believe that you did want to have a real film conversation about the typical of the flip-clap things, like like symbolism and themes and what it this all means and what is the deeper level and you can't have that with Moulin Rouge, unfortunately. Sure, but come on. I I like the film. I like the film, as I've noted. And you still have to come across every one of these days, every few of these weeks, some films that are just not maybe where we might not be the strongest, if that makes sense, or maybe where the movie kind of doesn't have that much to talk about. Yeah. You you can have those more hard, more of the flick discussions around film musicals. You can have those. There, there is really interesting discussions to be have about film musicals. You you can talk about the the differences between medias, the film and a stage show and how hard it is to bring those two together. You, for those, you know, I, I don't know, uh, The Phantom of the Opera is a good case. The New Cats is a good example. Both Andrew Lloyd Webber's. Or you can have a discussion about how grandiose a film musical can be for that, you know, Les Miserables. Or, or you can even have a really good and strong discussion about the failures of a musical and more so about the failures of a film adaptation of a musical. For that, you know, you can check out something like, for example, Rent, which is a, a really magnificent called dumpster fire in progress and the dumpster fire even is going downhill in a rapid speed. But un- unfortunately, and I knew this beforehand, Moulin Rouge is not the film musical for those discussions. And on that department, I do apologize for not stopping you earlier. Yeah, no worries. I was kind of disturbed to uh, somehow, like a lot of people seem to think, including my roommate, apparently, that Mulan Rouge runtime is something like three hours. I thought so as well, but no, it's just regular two hours, seven minutes. I know where this is understanding is coming from. Is No, I... I had only seen bits and pieces from the TV from this film before, so this is the first time I saw this in full. Okay, I'm I'm relieved to hear that. And I do promise that if you want to have more The Flick Lab discussion about film musical, you know, I, I can drop you the next musical and I'm willing to have that conversation. I, I, I don't know why I didn't, you know, stop you on your tra- tracks and recommend a different musical to be to be covered in this episode, and why I let you go with Moulin Rouge, but, you know, just just in case you want to take another shot at film musicals at some point, I promise to be there. Well, as long as that musical is not La La Land, I'm on board. I'm also all, all on board on skipping La La Land. Thank God. I, I couldn't last more than five minutes. I tried. Jeez, hey, not my type of area. 
So in the meantime and in the between time, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, social media, it's also called. Please don't forget to go to iTunes and review our show. Hopefully six stars, like out of possible five, of course. Our film for the next week is, uh, yeah, what is that film? Would it be uh, Italian-French co-production? <laughs> <laughs> No, no, it wouldn't, because we are international <laughs> product. Okay. Darn. I, I, listeners, I tried hard to seduct Henrik to do only Italian-French co-productions, but turn this podcast into something else. But I guess that's off the cards. Okay, but really, the movie of the next week, would it be Dare mo Shiranai Nobody Knows, 2004? Well, you, you said it yourself. Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows. So tune in next week to see whatever film you actually de- eventually landed on covering. Time to get the hell out of this podcast. Bugger off. See you next week. Until then. Tremendous, stupendous, bedazzlement, essential ravishment! <laughs>